Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. As an employer, if you become aware of a trend or problems and you do nothing about it, you are going to end up being liable for the bad outcomes down the road because you chose to do nothing. Welcome back to the second episode where we're talking about violence in the healthcare work environment. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Gordon Gillespie, an expert in the topic. Let's begin with an interesting fact. Here's Gordon. The odd one is if you've received violence training, you're significantly more likely to be assaulted. Why? And so I think, and that's the one you hear that, it makes no sense. You've been trained and now you're going to be hit. But if you call for a violence response team, who's going to come? The trained or the untrained? That's right. And when when some of my research, when I got looking at one of the persons that we worked with who had training, he had over 100. And it was weird because like I had over 100 when I was younger before I realized that you actually can just move away and not get hit. (laughs) <laughs> but I didn't realize those things. But this other person had a hundred or a lot of other people had 20 to 30 over this period of time of a year. Wow. And then I looked at his occupational role. It was security. So he worked in a facility where he was the only, the only security officer on night shift. So every event on his shift the entire year, he responded. And also he's helping to manage. So he's more likely to get, and they weren't all like being punched and injured. There's also pinches and slaps, hair pulls. Those things are violent. They might not cause a permanent injury. Or significant injury, but they're still considered an act of violence. Yeah. And so a lot of it is our role and the fact that we're trained. We're now requested because you've been trained, you now need to enter into a potentially hostile environment. So you're just more present. You have more opportunities to be in that scenario. Uh, an opportunity is a great way to phrase it. You have the opportunity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lucky you. But you also you have the opportunity to be assaulted, but also the opportunity to resolve the situation without injury to either party. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I have to ask you, because as we're talking about these risk factors, right, and naturally we're thinking about the risk factors as they relate to the patient or somebody else inflicting harm on the clinician, the nurse, whoever that healthcare worker is. But when I think about things like mental health diseases and disorders, history of violence, all of these different components, these factors that can increase the risk for violence, I'm also thinking about nurses themselves who have mental health disorders and disease and have a history of violence and are also people who come with these real things. And I I wonder if we forget that, right? We we forget that. We think about the direction of the violence being inflicted this way, but it can also be a combination of both ways, right? Coming from both ways. And how does that play into this? So a nice thing that the CDC NIOSH, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, they now have... um, a new construct called total worker health. And I believe they've like copyright registered it, but it's this really great construct where it really kind of helps to consider this very issue mm-hmm. where if you're at home and you're having stressors, whether it's financial troubles, marital problems, which make you definitely horribly stressed. We all know that. And if you have a significant other parent or partner that dies, those are major life stressors that just throw your whole world out of balance. And even if you have a mental disorder or not, that's just going to make you potentially more toxic or volatile. Or if you've had illness, COVID, I mean, lots of people are having COVID over and over. So how do you manage that? 
Yeah. Or if you have just diabetes or other health issues that can impact your ability to function in a way that you feel is healthy, you bring that to work and now you've got to be able to perform, but you have all this stuff at home. And then vice versa, if you've been assaulted at work, if you're having stress at work, you're exhausted from just the COVID world or the COVID nonstop rates and pandemic just ongoing, all that exhaustion and burnout, then you take home and you interact differently with people at home. And I've had nurses I know of that won't let their kids ride bicycles because they'll get killed by a car because they've taken care of so many kids that have been injured at a pediatric trauma center. It doesn't happen that much in reality for the number of kids on bikes, but that's all they see. So their whole worldview changes and it impacts their home life. Yeah. And so it's that idea of total worker health. And it's an area that's growing greater prominence. And I think that provides some hope where employers can help work with our employees and the workforce to really look at, are there risk factors within the individual that we can help manage? And I think some of those is watching for the subtle signs. And you hear this phrase about if you um, see something, say something. Yeah. That's really probably more in terms of terrorism and those things, but really it's for everything. If you see something that don't feel right, if it don't look right, say something. And it might be that you say, like, say, Gordon, you know, you're just not acting like your normal happy self. Like, do you want to talk about it? Like what's going on? And maybe I usually well-medicated, I'm under physical stress or I've had an infection and that's going to throw off all my doses in my body, my metabolism. So what was normally well-managed is not being managed now and I'm starting to act differently. And it's one of those people usually see it, but people have this concern that I don't want to upset them or offend them. So I'm just going to say nothing. And then it becomes really volatile, really hostile to the point where now we're talking about corrective action, termination, where if we see something that, again, if it just doesn't feel right, it doesn't look right, just call people out. There's ways to do it respectfully and privately, like definitely not at the break room table. So Gordon, like you seem kind of whatever today, like that's not the thing to say. It's better to say, you know, get me partner, get me close to, can we just talk for a few minutes? No, I'm just concerned for you. You just don't seem your happy, normal self. You don't seem hyperactive like normal. Like, do you want to kind of talk about what's going on? And and then if I might say, yeah, something's happening and I can offer, like for myself, I would say I'm not a mental health specialist, so I can't offer service, but I can listen. I can be a good friend. And I might say, you know, that's what EAP is for. It's confidential employee assistance program. Their services are free. They're confidential. Maybe you can give them a call. And because of our pride as individuals, as professionals, or because of our um, stigma with mental health, a person's probably not going to take the number. They're probably not going to, they have to tell you no, it seems, especially when you want to come off as um, the strong nurse, regardless of your gender or biological origin, you just want to be like, I can handle everything. Yeah. And so what I've had employees in the past when they've acted that way, saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to email you this phone number for EAP. And because I'm emailing it to you, you don't have to receive it. I won't know if you received it. You can delete it. You can keep it. You can print it. But if I handed them a phone number, they will never, ever take it because they can't. There's something with them. They just can't accept it. But I can email them a phone number or put in their mailbox envelope so that nobody knows and just remind them they're there to help you. But what I found is that in addition to kind of identifying these individuals, that people that they tend to trust can help them. And sometimes it's the chaplain. And what's really interesting is that people might say, like, you know, I will never go to EAP, but if Paul made rounds, I would definitely have him help. And he's like a real guy that I knew back in the day. And people just thought he was wonderful. Like he was the hospital chaplain. 
he came when all the kids had deaths and he would just be there and he would just sort of sit with people and you didn't even have to say anything. And eventually you would just start talking and he would like, you would go and he would say nothing and you would just like spill your guts and you leave oh, you and you just feel huh? refreshed. And it was almost like maybe he was deaf. <laughs> you know, <he> was talking. <laughs> I don't know, but he was just, but that kind of person, I think, because they see how he interacts with family members and patients and other clients that he becomes this trusting person and that becomes a person that they don't work with on the team. Cause sometimes it's hard to have your team member provide any kind of counseling because stars are not counselors probably. Yeah. But then it's also, I don't want you to know that I have weaknesses because that could, that has been used when you have a weakness. If you're in a situation that's a toxic work environment and you have bullying being exposed, you now become a target of the work culture because you're not strong enough to work here. So we need to help you to leave so that we can have a strong group here. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of reasons why people can't share. Um, one thing I would say is that in terms of workplace violence, it's really about the aggressor and it's kind of a narrow path in terms of, do we look at it as victim blaming? A lot of people would say, if we start diving into too much about the target that we then go into victim blaming, which then mm-hmm. creates more of a culture of acceptance and a culture of um, non-reporting, which are both harmful. Yep. But I do know there are some people whose personalities are just more toxic yeah. and they just, they haven't gotten the um, emotional intelligence or the maturity yet to learn how to navigate stressful situations. And so sometimes that's where there needs to be coaching from an organizational level, either one-on-one coaching, um, mock sessions where they can practice how to communicate effectively and how to get their needs met without escalating the situation. And then sometimes it really comes down to is this work environment is not good for you. Yeah. That you're just not going to be able, because it's it's a high stress, like psych mental health is high stress, emergency department, sometimes labor and delivery, especially if you're having a bad delivery or there's um, interpersonal violence involved, those can be really rough areas. And your personality, we love you. You're an excellent nurse. It just, it seems that you're not meshing well and you're not able to navigate these relationships in a way to help protect you from harm. So we might need to make a decision to move you into a different area of the facility in order to have you stay safe as well as the culture to remain safe. Yeah. And there's a ton of work. I think we, we all know this that still needs to be done. And it's a whole ball of wax in and of itself on workplace culture and things like that, how we communicate, how we remember to be humans to each other. So that's a big component. I, I really want to, to bring up this point because we've, we've said the word, the C word, that's COVID. We've said it a bunch yeah. of times. And here's the reality. COVID happened. And I strongly feel that for a lot of people, not just in healthcare, because boy, were, were we hit, the nurses and the physicians and everybody else, right? But COVID was the pulling back of the curtains and revealing a lot of things that maybe we hadn't seen or processed or digested before in healthcare. Talk about culture, talk about you know the environment and in the world, quite honestly, and in the world. And that has had to have an impact on this conversation, on talking about workplace violence. And I imagine that we're talking about it a lot more because we were seeing it a lot more and we were experiencing it a lot more. So what's true about that? What's true about COVID's impact? 
So if you would have asked me this question just under or just about two years ago, like during the 2020 after we've been in COVID for a few months, yeah, I would have said the world's on lockdown. No one's leaving except for those that really have to go to work, the essential workers, which is a variety of industries, including healthcare, and then patients that needed to go in. Surgery centers were closed. Everything optional was being shut down. You've got to wait. So there's a lot less volume cycling through the hospitals. So I would have assumed based on that, the rates have to be going down. But in reality, the rates have gone up and they just don't seem to be stabilizing back yet. And I think a lot of it is at least, and so I also was wondering, is it just the United States, that it really is a global. And I um, have had conference calls with folks in other countries, particularly through the Emergency Nurses Association. So it's been predominantly emergency nurses as opposed to other professions. But they said, yeah, COVID has made a great impact. And I think a lot of it is somewhat political. Because COVID is either not a real disease, in some countries it's not a real disease. In some countries, like even in Mexico, nurses were assaulted because they caused the pandemic. Nurses were spreading the disease and they were the result. And it's just like, wow, like, I don't know where that would have come, where the healthcare workers blame for causing the disease. No one wants the disease. You got to wear all this cruddy equipment on. It's just, it's hot and sweaty and expensive if you have it. Yeah. And some areas had no PPE for a while. And when I was on the Emergency Nurses Association Board of Directors, some of the areas like Detroit, the states that I oversaw, they had they had such limited supplies where some cities were abundant. And so no one wants to have this COVID. But part of it's become political. So where if you bring a family in and you want to test them, it's how dare you test me. It's my right not to be tested and I don't want to wear a mask. And now you've got to fight with them to wear a mask to help spread it, to stop the spread. Or they don't want you wearing a mask because you're implying that they have COVID and they don't want you wearing a mask. We're in the prior to COVID, no one would have cared if the healthcare worker wore a mask. And back in the day of H1N1, which was way back in the day, ever since then, when I started working clinically, I wore a mask almost all the time because it's like, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. And not because it was a pandemic. It was just the risk was there. At that time, H1N1 was impacting 35 to 45-year-old men, had the greatest lethality rate. And I was like, that's like my age group. It's like now mm-hmm. I've actually got a disease that I actually got to be fearful for. I'm yeah. like, just because you're healthy meant nothing. So I just got in the habit of wearing a mask. And now to be told, if you wear a mask, I'm going to get violent. Or if you give the family the diagnosis and said, yeah, they were di- they've been diagnosed with COVID or the worst of case, they, they're now dead and their primary diagnosis is COVID. People become violent and angry and it's like, there's no way I can have COVID. It's fake or they just go on and on. And if you offer immunizations, then it's one of those, you used to be able to offer them. People were like, thank you for giving me immunization. And now if this one, you can't offer it. And the pandemic doesn't show signs of really waning because we can't get the world immunized. And so, yeah, the C word COVID, it's just, it's made the work environment very hostile because we have to do things to protect the workforce and protect other patients in the building and doing that. It's because it's become this political divide and it's not just in the U S it's in other countries. It's become a taboo to discuss COVID within the healthcare setting as a potential diagnosis or even for prevention strategies. Yeah. It's become a, a fear, right? Like yes. you say it and like something bad might happen, you know, as a result of just even discussing it. In this episode, we identified some of the risk factors that clinicians should be aware of that can lead to violence. 
We also identified some strategies that can be used to manage the risk. COVID has had an impact on the healthcare environment in many ways, for the healthcare worker as well as patients and their families. The stressors that come with the pandemic can be exaggerated in the healthcare environment. Please join me once more for the final episode of this podcast as we dig deeper into how we can mitigate the impact of workplace violence. This is Jonna Emil for Elite Learning. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.